I've got 6.30 or so, <clears throat> so we'll go ahead and get going. So let's go ahead, we'll open with a prayer, and then we'll begin our study. Father, we thank you for the safe journey that uh, several have had. We continue to ask your comfort and blessing on those who are sick, on those who've lost uh, family members, and we just uh, know that you you give us a sense of peace, you give us comfort, you've given us the hope of heaven. We ask that you bless our time together, that we might uh, just have a better appreciation of who Jesus is and how Mark uh, was trying to portray him, that you would deepen our faith. We ask this through Christ. Amen. All right, reflections on the road to Emmaus. So again, what we're trying to do is hear the Old Testament as the gospel writers uh, presented it. And um, the kind of the foundation for the class is we have the encounter that Jesus had in Luke after his resurrection. We've got the two disciples walking back to Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They're downcast. They asked, you know, Jesus goes, hey, what's, you know, what's your problem? Why you sit down? And they said, look, you have no clue what's going on, you know. And that's, that's really the understatement of the scripture. And Jesus goes, well, tell me about it. I go, you know, this guy Jesus, we thought he's a prophet. We recognize he's a prophet. We really thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And we saw that's, that's a key component of the message of Jesus is that of redemption. And then Jesus comes back and says, you know, let me tell you about it. And, and Luke says that Jesus began with Moses and the prophets, and he explained all the scriptures that were written about him. And then as, as they get to Emmaus, he acts like he's going on. They invite him in for dinner. He prays. Their eyes were opened. They see Jesus. He then disappears, and they hustle it back to Jerusalem. It's, so it's that point there to where Jesus says, hey, Moses and the prophets wrote about me, and what we're trying to do, you know what? Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John used Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, meaning the other writings, in their story of Jesus. And it's hard for us to hear sometimes. Um there are direct prophecies that we do see. Those are easy. We saw in Matthew uh, that the wise men come. They say, hey, we saw the star of the king of, Je king of the Jews who's been born. Herod goes, um, where is this guy going to be born? So, they ask the so we ask the scribes. What do the scribes do? They go to Micah say, hey, Bethlehem, that's where he's going to be born. So there were some passages that were recognized as direct prophecies for the Messiah. Um, there was the idea that Elijah was to precede the Messiah. And we see several passages with that. And we saw last week how John the Baptist uh, fulfills that. Now then, again, we talked last week and we said, you know, if, if we said Afghanistan is our new Vietnam, we understand what that's saying. We know that Afghanistan has not become a country in Southeast Asia, right? What are we talking about? We're talking about a military quagmire, okay? 
So that's, we use that. If we say something gate, we talked last week, deflate gate or whitewater gate, we add gate to the ending of anything. What are we talking about? Well, we go back to what event? Watergate. Political scandal, political corruption, something a cover-up. So you say something gate, and you're, you're implying that. We know that. We don't need the dictionary for that. And if we were to use the same illustration in Guatemala, they, they wouldn't know. How would they know? Well, Kimmel could help them out, somebody who's familiar with the culture and could bridge that gap. And that's what we're using for our class here, are those who have spent time studying, seeing those echoes, and helping us uh, understand them. Uh, the more in tune we are with the Old Testament, the more we become familiar with it, then the more we can hear the echo in the Gospels. But if we are totally unfamiliar with the Old Testament, then it's going to be hard. Why could the Israelites, why could the Jews hear it? Well, because they're very familiar with it. It's their culture. They were immersed in it. So that's why those echoes were, were more easily recognized by them. And the third point here is the resurrection changed everything. After the resurrection, things that, that were unclear before, and we have several passages in the Gospels to where the writer says, you know, when this happened... The disciples didn't have a clue. But after the resurrection, they remembered. So when we see the resurrection, that allows us now to read retrospectively or in hindsight in a lot of these passages. Now, a lot of the passages and the echoes that we hear are not direct prophecies, but they are designed to help um, create a, a fuller picture of who Jesus is, to add some layers and some depth to explain who Jesus is and to explain his role. One of the things we talked about last week, we saw Mark 1-4. Again, we've got this, that last week, this week will be in Mark. But John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching baptism of repentance, and then we get down and it's verse 6. John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. And our comment was, why in the world, Mark, would you describe a fashion statement with John? That makes no sense to us. It's because it's not about the clothes. We think it's about the clothes. It's not. It's about who is John? What do we see? Who is John? John is the coming, the promised Elijah that's coming. How do we know that? Well, what does First uh, Second Kings say? They said, "What the man look like? He was a hairy man with a leather belt worn around his waist. Who is that? That's Elijah. That's what Mark is telling us. By telling us how John was dressed, he's confirming that John is the coming of Elijah. John is not a resurrected Elijah." But he's confirming that for us. We also saw in the parable of the talent, uh, the uh, wicked tenants, we saw several echoes in this particular parable. But one I wanted to, again, point out, um, kind of down to verse 6, he had one more to sin, a beloved son. We recognize that echo from Abraham, where God says, take your son, the one whom you love. So that echo is seen there. Um, uh, the vine grower said to one another, this is the heir, and here's the phrase, come let us kill him. 
Now, again, we kind of read right by that. We kind of want to get to the end of the parable. But what is that referencing? Where's that echo? Well, back in Genesis, we have Joseph coming. And what, is his, what do his brothers say to him? He says, now then, come let us kill him. We've got that same phrase. What is Jesus doing with the parable? Clearly, he's saying, who is he? He's the, he's the heir that's come. And he is casting himself as a type of Joseph in the same manner as Joseph. And we saw, what did Joseph? Joseph went down to Egypt. What did Jesus do? He went down to Egypt. Joseph was looked at as a redeemer. What is Jesus? He is a redeemer. So as we read the story of Joseph, we should be able to see hints of who Jesus is in that story. And that's what uh, Jesus was doing by that. Today we're going to look at uh, four things here. Uh, kind of Mark's portrayal of Jesus as the Davidic king, as the glorified son of man, Israel's God, and the crucified Messiah. We, we're going to look at them individually, but they are not to be interpreted individually. Mark weaves these together through his gospel. So we, we should see them all together as they paint this, this one picture of who Jesus is. So when we hear the term son of God, what do we think of in that? What do we think of in relation to Jesus? I'll put it that way. How do we cast that? Just quick thoughts. You get the Virgin Mary getting pregnant, so it had to be from God. Okay. Any, anyone other than maybe God, his divinity, is that kind of what we're saying there? That son of God, we're seeing his divinity. How about son of man? What do we see in that? Just as you, as you hear that and you immediately think, what do we think? His humanity. His humanity. Again, I've got him turned up as high as I can, but it's still not good. All right. So we're going to look at this. And by that, we're probably already thinking, uh-oh. Wonder if we may not quite have that full picture painted for us. Again, as we go through this, we're not, I'm not saying we are changing how we view Jesus. We're not changing how we see scripture. But we are wanting to add a little more depth to it. We're wanting to see uh, if there's more layers or something deeper that we can uncover. Second Samuel 7, the Lord declared to you, also declares to you, the Lord will make a house for you. The you is David. When you're, again, David, days are complete. You lie down with your fathers. I'll raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I'll correct him with the rod of men. And the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words in this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. A couple things we want to look at. It says he shall build a house um, for my name. Who does that? Who builds the house for God's name? Solomon does. David's direct descendant. Okay, So we know we kind of get that. Then we see this, uh, this comment, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is where the Jews get the concept 
the, of all of their kings must come from David because God has promised David that very thing. He says, look, I, I stripped the kingdom from Saul, but not you, David. So we have this concept of a Davidic king who will continually rule Israel. And then verse 14 says what? I'll be a father to him. He will be a son to me. So what is the king called? What's another way we could call the, the king here? What's God saying? That the king is the son of God. Okay, Let's not overcomplicate it. When God says, I'm his father, he's my son, the king is called the son of God. And again, we have this promise, your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Um, well, let's see. So we get that. Well, let's also come to Psalm 2.6. In Psalm 2.6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely detect, tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What is the king called? My son. So, for the Jews, hearing the term son of God goes right back to this. Psalm 1850. He gives great deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. So again, in the Psalms, we have parallelism to where we have two verses that say the same thing, but use kind of different words, so we can use one verse to help interpret the other verse. So in this case, we have this parallel, king and anointed go together. It's the same person, saying the same thing. What do we need to know? Well, anointed in Hebrew is Messiah. The Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew text, would say, shows loving kindness to his Messiah. If we read that same verse in the Septuagint, Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, he's going to say, and he shows loving kindness to his Christ. Christ is not a New Testament word. This is not a word that was invented to apply just to Jesus. This is an Old Testament word that simply means the Messiah, that simply means anointed. Who were, who, who were anointed in the Old Testament? Kings, prophets, and priests. Okay. What, is, what does Jesus wind up being? A king, a prophet, a priest. But isn't God father to all of us? I mean, well, you know, his... his uh, well, there, there, yeah. Yes. So let's not try to keep things too narrowed in. Um, and we will see this in a bit. I think I, I think it's the it's a passage in Psalms um, where you are all my sons. Um, so yes, in one sense, we are all sons. But in a, in a very... Um, known sense the king is the son of God okay. so that that is just that's that is a royal title that would be given 
uh, to to the king in the time of Jesus in the in the Old Testament. Okay. So just, okay. In other words, I'm saying it's like it's someone I like think in my head. Oh well, this is the only case is applicable for the king. When obviously we know that we're he's our father too. Absolutely. So, no, absolutely not. Uh, so this, it seems like a more common term. It can be. It can be a common term, but it can also be a royal term, a term that denotes who the king is. So then how, I guess, except for the text, I mean, are you identifying a specific, like a Jew, an Israelite, back in the day, if you said, you know, son of God, oh, that's the king. I mean, they wouldn't think. Let me get, let me get there. Okay. Let me get there. Um. Mark 1 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This Son of God here is not generic. We're all God's, God's our Father to everybody. That's a royal title. Mark has started his gospel here saying, Jesus, Messiah. It's not G, first name Jesus, last name Christ. Okay? <laughs> He's saying, this is the story of Jesus, the anointed, the Son of God. In his first sentence, Mark has said, I'm telling you about this man who is the anointed, and he is a Davidic king. I'm going to show you how he is in the royal line of David. And this is an earthly title. It refers to a human. Oh yes, when we say Son of God is his divinity, well, it mainly refers to his humanity and how he is a king and Davidic king of the Jews. Now, Son of God takes on more meaning, so we can't pigeonhole it and say every time we see that, it's meaning an earthly king. But what I would like you to do is to recognize that as I read through Mark now, and I see that, that phrase, Son of God, now I'm going to be thinking a little deeper than just his divinity, and I'm going to be thinking of, okay, this is telling me that Jesus is, along the, is, is in that royal kingly line of David. And he is being recognized as the king of the Jews and, and has right to that title. So we're just adding some depth here. Do the gospel writers at times use son of God to recognize his divinity? Absolutely. And we kind of have to look at context in order to establish that at times. But God, God from heaven says at his um, transfiguration, this is my son. Now, could that be a kingly title that he's giving him at that time? Sure. Can it be a divine title? Sure. Let's not make it either or. It, it's both. Okay? But Mark here, I believe, is starting out not by saying that Jesus is divine. He's got to build that case through a story. He's saying Jesus is a king. Um, so when, when we just kind of saw that. Mark 10, they came to Jericho, he was leaving Jericho, a large crowd, a, and, and Mark is careful to note this, okay, note the, any, any of these little adjectives that describe people are important, 
They help define it for us. A blind beggar named Bartimus, son of Timaeus, was sitting at the road. He heard it was Jesus the Nazarene, and he cries out, what? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. They said, hey, you shut up. And he said, nope, son of David, have mercy upon me. What title is this? This is a kingly title. And notice that Mark nor Jesus corrects Bartimaeus. Jesus doesn't say, uh, wait a minute, that, that's really not right. He accepts that title, son of David, which again would say, I am in this royal line and I, des- I am king. And it's interesting that it's the blind man who actually sees who Jesus is. And those who see are blinded to what's around them. And that's common within Mark. A few chapters earlier, Mark begins a section with the blind man, and, and it's like, you know, he Jesus heals him. What do you see? Well, I just see things moving around. And then he does something again. What do you see? Well, now I can see. And we see that that's a figural um, representation of what's happening to people as they slowly began to try to see. And what did we have just before this? We had the rich young ruler. And Jesus says to the rich young ruler, what? Sell all you have and do what? Follow me. He went away sad. That's uh, not definite whether he did or not, but we, the implication is kind of there that he didn't follow. What does he tell Bartimaeus at the end? Jesus said, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. What does he do? He began following him. So this, these are the kind of the irony that Mark brings into some of his stories. So we're now to Mark, to Mark 11. Uh, this is right after this, this healing. So we were in Mark um, 10, now we're to 11. So they're approaching Jerusalem, uh, Bethpage, Bethany. And sends two disciples, go into the village opposite you immediately as you enter, find a cult there. Uh, if anyone asks, say the Lord needs it. They went away, found the cult, uh, come back. Um, Jesus sits on it. They spread their coats on the road. Others spread leafy branches from cut. Those who went in front and those who were followed shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now again, uh, for those who weren't here last week, the scripture references, if they're not indicated, are New American Standard 1995. For the most part, if I forgot to change it back to that when I copied and pasted, then that's my uh, that's just my fault. But for the most part, New American Standard. And what New American Standard tries to help us when it gives us Sentences or words in all caps, that's their clue that says, hey, this is from the Old Testament. So that's how we interpret their publishing notes. The Greek did not have that. So Mark didn't write that. Um, He wrote everything in uppercase because Greek was all uppercase. There was no lowercase there. But as we see this event right here, Mark is is quoting from Zechariah 9.9. Mark's um, so in Zechariah 9.9, we see, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a coat, colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Mark doesn't tell us this, does he? He just says, here's the picture. And he's trusting that his readers understand or his listeners understand that they should go back to Zechariah. Now, if we were to continue reading in Zechariah, what do we read? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem, the bow of war will be cut off. He will speak peace to nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Sounds kind of like a military conquest. Sounds like a military king. So it's not surprising that as the Jews were looking for their Messiah, that there was a military component to that and that they see that. And that's kind of what the, as he's coming into Jerusalem, what they're wanting to see is this military leader coming in, help overthrow Rome, and uh, kind of like the Maccabees did several hundred years before. And Jesus is, is really spends some of his time trying to retype or recast that view that they had of who the Messiah is. Was he on a donkey and a colt at the same time? You know, it's... Because it, it's, it's, it's in Matthew also. It's yeah, it's in Matthew also. And if, and if we look at it, sometimes the passage is, is, is confusing because it says he will be riding a, a donkey and a colt. And it's like, how's that going to happen? So yeah, it's a tough picture to understand. I'll grant that. Okay. I okay. It's there. It's, 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 yes, it's there. It, it, the implication in the picture is two different animals. Okay. I Just, didn't know if a colt was a young dog. I, I can't get there. <laughs> Don't so, Wasn't the donkey never written before? That I don't know. Oh, God. Um, so down at the bottom where we see, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting from Psalm 18. Again, one of the Hallel song Psalms that were sung as people were going up to Jerusalem. So again, everyone is very familiar with this song. And just kind of compare, uh, see what it's saying. It says, Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord, the temple. Hosanna simply means... Um, in essence, deliver or save us. So when we see beseech you, that's really the Hosanna that's, that's in what Mark says there. So we're seeing Jesus cast himself in this um, passage that's coming from Psalms. And here we go. Again, we're still in Mark, just to chapter 12 now. We're just moving a little bit further along in the, uh, in the narrative. How is it that the, Jesus asked this question? So Jesus has spent some time bantering back and forth. He's gotten some questions. He's given some answers. Gotten some questions. Given some answers. And from our study last fall, we recognized that a lot of this was an honor challenge. So again, within that culture, honor was very important. And when there was an honor challenge, you know, if I if I kind of challenge Gary publicly. One of us is going to win. One of us is going to lose. There's no draw. And if I win, because I get to be up front, then I gain in honor. Gary loses in honor. It's not like there's this unlimited supply of honor. It's, it's a pie. And if my piece gets, piece gets bigger, his piece gets smaller. 
And who gets to decide? The people around. And that's why a lot of times when we see these questions from Jesus, we see the response of the crowd because the writers want to let us know who won that battle. That was very important for them. So at the end of that, we have Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, you know, how is it the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And notice this last little phrase here. The large crowds enjoyed listening to him. They knew that was an honor challenge. Who won? Jesus is winning that. So that's kind of one thing we kind of need to, just one little tidbit we see in this encounter here, that, that's an, that Jesus kind of fighting back now, and he's uh, taking honor from them. Um, he's quoting from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your, she for your feet. So Jesus is, is not uh, saying that the Messiah doesn't come from David. But what he's trying to do is recast this Messiah and say he's really not a military leader. So he's not this military uh, conquest that's coming in. So he's trying to redefine this a little bit and, and in essence cast himself as someone in essence who is also from David but above David. We see in Mark 15, the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. That's absolutely right. Pilate was absolutely correct in what he put above Jesus' head. Again, continue on. Let this Christ, again, the crowds are saying, let this Christ, the king of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Again, they are right that he is the king of Israel. What they missed was he did come down from the cross, and yet they did not see and they did not believe because he then was resurrected. So it's kind of an incrimination here amongst themselves saying, you know, if, if you could come down from the cross, we'll believe, but many, many did not. So what we see is that son of God is likely an earthly title. It's a kingly title. So as we read through uh, Mark and the Gospels and you see Son of God, it's okay to think divine, but let's add into that this view of Jesus being an, a king, um, a human king in, in that same vein. So, If Son of God kind of means is an earthly title, what's that going to tell us about Son of Man? Probably not a, a manly title or an earthly title. Mark 8.31, he began to teach the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected. Uh, Mark 9, he gave them orders not to relate to, to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So we see Jesus using this title, Son of Man, um, for himself. And it's, it's obvious in these references that Son of Man refers to himself. First, let's go to Mark uh, chapter 13 here. Kind of set the stage a little bit. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, 
let the reader understand. And we understand, right? We go, Mark, I have no clue. No clue what you're talking about. He goes, those in Judea must flee to the mountains. So Mark gives us this phrase and goes, you know, when you see this abomination of desolation, you know, then you need to flee. So Mark is, is hinting at how he is writing. He is writing in a way that he doesn't give us a lot of detail. He lets his listeners fill in the details. A little tough for us. Let's compare. Um, it's kind of like, yeah, what, what is it the reader is supposed to understand? Because I'm reading it. I need to understand. Let's see how Matthew writes this. And again, we're doing Mark first because most scholars think Mark's written first. Matthew, Luke, after that, kind of use Mark as a outline for their Gospels. And we see that Matthew is very close to what Mark says here. Although Matthew, Matthew's a little more generous. We'll go into Matthew next week. And we're going to see Matthew's not like Mark. Mark just gives us hints. What does Matthew do? Matthew says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of in Daniel, standing in the holy place, now do you understand? Then flee to the mountains. So what does Matthew do? Matthew says, Hey, here's where you need to go look for that. And here's what you need to be looking for. Whereas Mark just says, you guys got it. So we can use Matthew to know what Mark is talking about. So what's Mark talking about? Well, let's go to Daniel. Daniel 9.27. He shall make a strong covenant for, with many for one week, for half a week. He shall make sacrifice offering cease. And in their place shall be a desolating sacrilege. Daniel 11. Forces sent by him shall occupy and profane the temple and fortress. Abolish burnt offerings and set up the desolating sacrilege. Again, Daniel 12, from the time that the regular burnt offerings taken away and the desolating sacrilege is set up, there'll be some days. So we see that when Mark is referencing this, he is going back to Daniel. And in essence, telling us that Daniel is important. We need to be familiar with Daniel if we're going to understand events here in the time of Jesus. We're going to move backwards a little in Daniel. Daniel has a vision. Daniel verse chapter 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So here's the phrase, the first time we kind of see this phrase, son of man. And the son of man is elevated to a status that is what looks to be equal to God. He is presented as someone who is divine, as he will eventually have um, ascend through the clouds and be enthroned or sit at the right hand of God. So the Jews had this concept of a son of man who is coming. 
And notice again, what do we see? What's some of the language that we see at the end of this? What kind of dominion? Everlasting. What kind of kingdom? One that won't be destroyed. Haven't we heard that somewhere before? We've heard that in Samuel. What did God say to the Davidic kingly line? It's going to be forever. It's not going to be destroyed. So we have hints here in Daniel hinting back to Samuel regarding the, the kingly line of David. So the Son of Man um, is, and, and the New Revised Standard, I saw one like a human being, but he's really, he's really divine. So we, that's, the, that's the, um, the image that is there. Mark 13, um, Jesus is talking about the events that are to come. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will be falling from heaven. Uh, 26, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send forth the angels, gather together his elect from the four winds. So again, Jesus applying this passage to himself and taking on what Daniel spoke about. Again, we see the same imagery of the clouds in, in both of those. Notice what how Jesus uses Son of Man in regards to himself and what he says can happen. Which is easier to say the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say get up and walk. So that you may know the Son of Man has what? Authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, take up your pallet. Mark chapter 2, again just a little later in, in the narrative. Jesus said, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of Sabbath, who created the Sabbath. God created the Sabbath. Jesus saying, Son of Man, same level there is God. And then in Mark 8, um, again, forever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous sinful generation. The Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Again, we see this Daniel uh, imagery coming back into play. Mark 14. So what we know is that from the imagery of Daniel, the Jews were very aware of this individual named the Son of Man, a divine being who is going to come and there will be events associated with him. So that's that we just kind of have to have that in our minds, that Son of Man is a divine title. And it's not used in an earthly sense. We don't, there's no, I don't see any instances where Son of Man refers to his humanity. So where Son of God, you know, we could have some various meanings. Son of Man doesn't seem to have that flexibility. It's very much a divine title. So Jesus is before, um, this is on, on the night of his betrayal. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple with hands and in three days I'll build another. Not even in this respect were their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward, questioned Jesus. Don't you answer these testimonies against you? He was silent. The high priest questioned him. Here's the question. It's the question that Mark has been leading up to his entire narrative. Okay? The narrative starts, this is the story of the Messiah, the Son of God, the kingly title. 
So we started by saying this Jesus is the anointed, Jesus is the king. We now get the question direct. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Jesus said, I am. Now, had Jesus stopped right there, really not a big deal. Others had been called the Messiah. To say that I'm the Messiah, okay, David was a Messiah. He was anointed as king. Solomon was a Messiah. He was anointed as king. So the fact that Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah, wasn't really anything to get all worked up about. What works him up? Look at what Jesus now says. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus didn't just say, yes, I'm the king. Jesus said what? I'm God. I am this divine being, son of man, whom Daniel prophesied about. And you're going to see me with the clouds in glory. That's what destroyed their... I mean, that's why they went into such a frenzy. It's that phrase there. We kind of miss that, I think, at times. We kind of think, well, Jesus saying he's the Christ, that's what, well, no. It's Jesus taking that title and saying, yes, I'm the Son of Man. Richard? Could it also be when he says, I am? I've always understood that to be just what God says. Yeah, I hear that and I saw that. I think in this case, Jesus is just using I am to say, yep, I'm the Messiah. Because the next phrase is the divine phrase. The, the next, where he says, you'll see the Son of Man again saying, I am that Son of Man. That to me, I think, is the divine part of it. Now, could it be the I am is, is referring back to God before Moses in the burning bush where he says, I am? Possibly. But um, it, it could also mean, just mean yes. So I, I, won't, I wouldn't argue either way if someone want interpret it that way, that's fine. Yeah, but I, I, I think I think it's the second part that really got him into a frenzy, uh, is making that claim of of being the divine that that um, So when we go to Acts and Luke is recording things for us. And we see Jesus. What do we see? How does Luke record this? Luke records it by saying, after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Luke's not giving us a weather report. Okay? It's not, oh, today, this day was cloudy, and Jesus could have done it on a sunny day, and there wasn't. It's not about the cloud and the weather. It's about fulfilling what Daniel said. And you see the Son of Man and the cloud terminology always thrown together. And, and when you look at, at Daniel, it says the cloud, he was coming with the clouds. We go, well, you know, what's this coming up? Because, well, we're looking at it from our perspective. If you look at it from 
the perspective of the Ancient of Days, Jesus is coming up with the clouds. And that's why we always see it as ascending with the clouds. It's from the perspective of heaven, not from, um, you know, from that, that way there. So we've seen um, Jesus as portrayed in Mark as the royal Davidic king. We've seen him portrayed as um, the son of man. And again, a, a divine title. Now as the God of, of Israel. Again, Mark 1.1. 1, 1. We've been, again, we're seeing some of this and we see overlap in this. So again, I'm trying, I'm kind of taking it in four parts, but it's a lot of this is just overlapping. We're, we have to see this as blending together. So is there a, you, yeah. So, so the son of man, obviously if I'm God, I don't need to be man. So is it more, I mean, is it, I mean, because I know we were talking about the phrases, but obviously you can't be the son of a man. Physically, but I mean, is it, is it just kind of like a saying, you know, I was God and I became human? Daniel's phrase again, the new the the NRSV translates it a little better. It's it's one like a human being, okay. so one who looks like a human being. Okay. So, uh, but again, there is the divine element of that. Okay. Okay. Sorry, everybody else knew that. Yeah. No, very good. Good question. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed, the Christ, the Son of God. As is written in, the, in Isaiah the prophet, there Mark helps us out a little bit. Behold, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. We talked about this last week. What, what event are we going back to with this? Somebody's was here last week. Exodus. We're going back to the Exodus. Exodus story is is one of those seminal events in the Israelite story, in the Jewish story. It's a story of redemption. And what is the story of Jesus? It's the story of redemption. That's why those two are tied so closely together. This comes from Isaiah chapter 40. Again, Mark helped us a little. A voice cries out, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Again, we've got the, the Jewish parallelism where we've got two sentences saying the same thing, using some different words. We can use that to help understand. Who is Isaiah talking about? He's talking about Israel's God, Yahweh. Okay. That is, that is the reference that Isaiah is making. He's referenced the wilderness wanderings as, as God leads the children of Israel through the desert. It is Israel's God that's doing the leading. What has Mark done? Mark has taken a passage that is directly referencing the God of Israel and applying that to Jesus. And saying, because obviously in in Mark uh, 3, we've got the voice of one crying, uh, Elijah. And then to this where he's appropriating this passage and applying it to, um, to Jesus in that way. Exodus 34. The Lord is with Moses. 
The Lord passed before him Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to a thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So what is one of the roles of the God of Israel? One of his roles and his alone is to forgive sin. No one else can forgive sins. And this is, I mean, this is God himself saying, this is who I am. I am the one who can forgive sins. Did the Jews know that? Absolutely. That's, that's what they're, they're, it's built on, their role, their understanding of God. So a very central component of God's character is to forgive sin. We've been here before. We're coming back to it. Uh, again, seeing the paralytic. Uh, son, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus makes that comment. So how do they reply? They reply very accurately, right? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's an accurate statement. And where do they get that from? They get that from Exodus. That's, that's where that concept is coming from. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, hey, as son of man, I have the authority to forgive sins. So what has Mark done? Mark again has equated Jesus with the God of Israel by saying, God of Israel can forgive sins. Jesus can forgive sins. I'm casting Jesus. You should know as you're going through this story that I am seeing Jesus. I'm telling you, Jesus is the God of Israel. And then we have the phrase, um, Jesus says this, but so that you may know the Son of Man. That phrase there, if we think back, where have we heard that before? Well, if we go back to Exodus in 9, Moses was before Pharaoh. Moses says to Pharaoh, Let my people go so that they may serve me. For this time I'll send my plagues upon you and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me on all the earth. And a couple more times in Exodus we see that phrase. So Jesus is, is in essence casting himself in, in Moses' role there. And what is he calling the scribes and the Pharisees? What role are they being put in? They're being put in the role of Pharaoh with the hardness of heart. So again, we're just adding, adding a layer of how we see how Jesus is interacting with the individuals and how he's calling them back. And they would know that. They've, I mean, Exodus, they know that they know that story. They know that phrase. And they know exactly what Jesus was in essence saying to them. Mark chapter 4. Evening came. Let's go over to the other side, leaving the crowd. They got in a boat. Disciples get in the or They all got in a boat. Uh, first wind came up. Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? He got in the boat, rebuked the wind, said to the sea, hush, be still. And then the question that they asked each other. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark doesn't answer the question, at least directly. 
But let's look at the phrase. What does it mean that Jesus rebuked the wind? Psalm 107. Um, Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the mighty waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord. He commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. Come down to 28. They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Again, Mark is relating to us this encounter to where it is God who is able to hush the sea and Jesus is being cast in this same light from the Psalms. Um, Psalm 106, our fathers of Egypt didn't understand your wonders and again verse 8, he saved them for his name's sake, he rebuked the Red Sea and dried it up led them through the depths, the deeps as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of the one who hated them, and he redeemed them from the hand of his enemy. Again, we're seeing this story of redemption and Jesus being cast as a redeemer. Mark 6. Jesus went ashore, saw a large crowd, felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. Um, he said, hey, give them something to eat. And, hey, we don't have much. Five loaves, two fish. What did he do? He commanded them to sit down by groups on the green grass. Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God. Now before in Ezekiel, Ezekiel has cast um, David as a shepherd and kind of put in say a, a someone who's like David will come in and shepherd. But then Ezekiel goes further and he says this, the Lord God says this, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd on that day when he is scattered among his sheep, so I will care for my sheep. We continue down. I'll bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries. They will bring them to their own land. I will feed them. On the mountains of Israel, by the streams and all the inhabited places, I will feed them in good pastures and on their grazing ground. I will feed my flock and lead them to rest. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick. What happened in the feeding of the 5,000? Jesus says they are like a sheep without a shepherd. What role is he casting himself in? He's casting himself in this Ezekiel role as God being the shepherd and the shepherd will feed them. And and that's the role that Jesus is casting himself as. Again, last one here. Getting close. We're we're, We're getting close. We've still got the crucified Messiah. So Mark 6. Disciples got in a boat. They were crossing on the other side. The winds came up. Uh, So Jesus, again, middle of the night, comes walking on the sea. And it says he intended to pass them by. They saw him. So we have this um, story of Jesus walking on the sea. Why this story? Well, if we go back to Job 9, it is God who removes the mountains. They know not how. When he overturns them in his anger, then we get down to verse 8, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea. Eh, a little fuzzy there. I, you know, that's a bit of a stretch. Until we go to the Septuagint. Again, if we look at how the Septuagint translates this, the Septuagint says, "Who alone has stretched out the heaven and walks on the sea as firm ground." So here again, I think Mark is recalling this back to Job, 
And what we see is we have this this oddity here that it's like Jesus intended to pass. And, and we, we, we look at that and we go, okay, so he's walking along waves and just kind of, what is up with that? Why why was it, oh, he wanted to build their faith. Oh, he was just wanting to see if they would ask him into the boat or all of these kind of things. Let's give, let's keep, let's keep reading. So again, we're in Job. Um, again, he, tra- he walks on the sea as firm ground. He makes the bear. And then verse 11, this is what Job says. Were he to pass me by, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. And what does this what does Mark say in regards to the disciples on this event? He got in the boat, and what happened? They did not perceive him. They had not gained any insight as to what was going on. Now I think I think that can help us understand what that phrase meant. If we go back to Job, we see that the disciples just weren't perceiving who Jesus is. It really has nothing to do with Jesus waltzing by them. It's to call it back to say, you know what, if if God were to pass by me, I just wouldn't recognize it. And and that I, I think that gives us insight into this event on the water. So Jesus is prayed as the in Mark as the physical embodiment of the God of Israel. So we've got three minutes. Some of you were late, so that means I get that time on added on. We're not spending a lot of time with this, but just, just kind of this. Mark 14. The Son of Man is to go just as written of him. So again, he's talking about he is going to be betrayed. And it says that it's it's written about me on this. Um, Mark 14, we have the arrest down to verse 48. You've come out with swords and clubs as you would against me. Every day I was with you in the temple preaching. You did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. So again, we're seeing the, Jesus saying this, this, all of this was written ahead of time. It's to fulfill the scriptures. Mark 14, they went out from the Mount of Olives. Jesus says, you're going to fall away because it's written. I'll strike down the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered. Where is it written? Mark doesn't tell us. We know that. We know Mark's not going to help us out. New American Standard puts it in all caps, so we know we need to look for something. We look for something. Zechariah 13, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Um, Against the man, my associate declares the Lord, strike the shepherd and the sheep may be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Again, in Zechariah, it's the sword who's doing the striking. In Mark 14, Jesus kind of casts it as God doing the striking. Uh, He kind of changes how that's going to happen and says, I will strike down the shepherd, I guess in essence, meaning, meaning God's going to do that. We get to the crucifixion. Last little bit here. Um, they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots to decide what each man would take. Again, we look at that and we go, that's an odd detail. It's a very odd detail for someone telling a crucifixion story. We have an execution going on and we're, and we're worried about his clothes. Why that? Little father, the sixth hour came, the ninth hour Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're familiar with the passage. That is taken 
from Psalm 22, the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, you don't answer. By night, have no rest. We have this psalm of lament that David, as he's writing, wonders where God is. If we continue reading in the psalm, we see, I can count all my bones. Again, uh, some of the other gospel writers tell us what? Not a bone was broken. Again, coming back to this psalm. It's very important in regards to the crucifixion story. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Why did Mark include that? To encourage us to keep reading in Psalm 22. Okay, saying, no, don't, don't stop at the first verse. Keep reading in Psalm 22. Why should we keep reading in Psalm 22? We move towards the end. For he has not despised or abhorred the poverty of the poor. He did not hide his face from him, but listened to his cry. So when the psalm opens, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where does the writer get to? He gets to the point that says, you didn't forsake me. You haven't hidden your face from me. We, we get stuck on verse 1. We, we, we often don't make it to 25 to see the real part of the psalm or the, the encouraging part of the psalm. Verse 27. Again, you've got two verses here because the complete Jewish Bible um, verses are just a little different than our standard English. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Adonai the Lord. All the clans of the nations will worship you in your presence. Even in the psalm, what is being prefigured here? The Gentiles coming to Jesus. All the nations really could be planted, could be translated, all the clans of the Gentiles. Okay, that's, that's a, that would be synonymous with what's being said there. So we see in this psalm again, a inclusion of the Gentiles through Jesus. And then the, to get to the very end, verse 30, 31, they will come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he is the one who did it. And who are the people that are yet unborn? That's us. And we get to proclaim, what did Jesus say? It is finished. That's the psalm that Jesus is saying when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, you haven't and you've done it. And the thing is, if we see this psalm, we recognize what this psalm is saying. This psalm is the gospel story. And if we recognize the gospel story, we recognize what Jesus has done, that allows us to continue reading, and we get what? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What does he do? Makes me lie down in green pastures. I... What happened the feeding of the 5,000? 
they sat down in the green grass. How much was picked up afterwards? Baskets full. I shall not want. So now, hopefully, we have a, another layer of depth as we look at Psalm 23. We see this not just as God, but as Jesus being our shepherd, having completed what he did on the cross. So, lesson for tonight. Next week we'll start in Matthew. Thanks for the little bit of overage. Have a good rest of the week. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.